Well, we continue this morning in our study of the Gospel of Luke, and we come this morning to Luke chapter 20, beginning with verse 27. Luke chapter 20, beginning with verse 27. Last week, we saw the Pharisees, the chief priests and the scribes, try to trap Jesus with a question regarding taxes. This morning, there is another group that comes to Jesus, the Sadducees, and they try to trap him with a question regarding marriage and the resurrection. Now there came to him some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. And they questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife, and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died childless, and the second and the third married her, and in the same way all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. Then he said to them, How is it that they say Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore David calls him Lord. And how is he his son? Father, we pray that you would open this word to us today. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. There is a reason why in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes an entire chapter about the resurrection. That reason is because even... In those early days of the church, you had people who were critical of the doctrine of the resurrection. Here we are before Paul in the ministry of Jesus, and there are people who are disbelievers in the resurrection, critics of the resurrection. When Paul was speaking to the Greek intellectuals, at Mars Hill in Athens, they listened to him 
right up to the point where he started speaking about resurrection. And then they laughed at him. There continues to be no shortage of skeptics of the resurrection. The interesting thing is, in the last couple of hundred years, you find those skeptics in the church. You find those skeptics among people who call themselves Christians, and not only Christians, but Christian leaders, pastors, bishops. You don't have to look far to find people who claim to be Christian leaders who nonetheless deny the resurrection. For that matter, you can find people who call themselves Christian leaders who are atheists. (laughs) It's an amazing time we live in. Many years ago, there was a debate which took place among several pastors, and in this debate, it had become apparent to the other panelists that one of the participants did not hold to a traditional attitude toward Christian doctrine. And one of them came right out and asked him point blank, do you deny the resurrection? The man responded by saying, I deny the resurrection every time I don't care for the poor. Every time I don't feed the hungry, every time I don't side with the oppressed, every time I don't cry a tear for those who have no more tears to cry. And I affirm the resurrection every time I feed the poor, every time I side with the oppressed, every time I take care of the hungry, every time I come alongside those who have no more tears to cry and shed a tear for them. That answer is not a profession of Christianity, but of postmodern rationalism. It is moralism. It is at its heart a declaration that the doctrine of resurrection does not matter. What matters is what we do, how we live. But that is not Jesus' attitude toward doctrine. Not toward the doctrine of resurrection and not toward doctrine in general. And you see that very clearly here. We want to see that in our passage this morning. Several things are here that I'd like you to see as we approach the end of this 20th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And the first thing that I want you to see here this morning is that Jesus affirms the biblical doctrine of resurrection. Now, notice I say resurrection. Not specifically the resurrection. When we speak about the resurrection, typically we're talking about Jesus' resurrection. But the doctrine of resurrection is more than that. Again, go back and read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul lays out in depth the doctrine of resurrection. Because Jesus is not the only one who is resurrected. We will be raised as well if we are in Christ. Indeed, even unbelievers will be raised, but they will be raised to judgment. And so what we're seeing here this morning is Jesus' affirmation of the biblical teaching of the doctrine of resurrection. 
In this passage, we see Jesus triumphing over those who would mock him with skeptical questions. They set the stage. This whole question, this this whole conversation comes out of a debate which was taking place in the first century among the religious leaders of Israel, and it's centered upon this doctrine of the resurrection. Paul does the same thing. Paul is brought to trial among the Jewish leadership one time, and he, being very wise as he was, says, you know what, guys? I'm on trial for the resurrection. And you know what happens? All of the religious leaders start arguing amongst themselves because some believed the resurrection and some did not. And then they kind of forgot about Paul. This happens every now and then in ordination councils. (laughs) Pastor is there and he's being examined. Controversial question is raised and all the examiners, all the other pastors will be there and they start arguing amongst each other and they forget about the guy who is supposed to be questioned. My counsel to them always is just shut up. Let Let them do it. If they forget about you, That's better. But back in Jesus' day, you had the Pharisees, and they were the conservative party in in Judaism, and they firmly believed in the resurrection. And then you had the Sadducees, and they were the equivalent of the theological liberals of their day, and they did not believe in the resurrection. Now, Jesus tells us in a parallel passage, if you look in the Gospel of Matthew, there's a parallel to this passage. Jesus tells us why they deny the resurrection. And you know what he says? He says that they deny the resurrection because they don't know the scriptures, nor the power of God. Now, I don't need to know anything else about the Sadducees to know this. I believe Jesus And I believe that Jesus knew what he was talking about. And he says the problem with the Sadducees was they don't know their Bibles. And because they don't know their Bibles, they don't know the power of God. And that's why they didn't embrace the resurrection. But it's very interesting that Jesus does not respond specifically to that controversy. You can imagine the Sadducees, they tell this story and they think they are just so clever. You ever get into a conversation with an atheist and they think they're going to be so clever and they ask, well, let me ask you this. Can God create a rock that is too heavy for him to lift? (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. And they think they've got you. Because what do we say? We say God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Well, then can he create a rock that is too heavy for him to lift? And I hope you know the answer to that question. The answer is 
God is a rational God and does not do irrational things. Jesus is dealing with this question coming from people who don't want a legitimate answer to a legitimate question. They are skeptics. And so they go back and they take the law of leveret marriage, where if there's a man married to a woman and he dies and there are no children to carry on his name, then in order to pass the land on to a next generation in that dead man's name, his brother marries the widow. And the Sadducees go back to that Old Testament law and they use it to mock the doctrine of resurrection. This woman's been married seven times. Who's she going to be married to when she's in heaven? And how many angels can fit on the head of a pin? Now, Jesus' response to that question is not only very instructive, but it's, it's a challenge to their entire system. It's instructive not only for what Jesus says, but also for what he doesn't say. He doesn't say... I'm not going to get involved in this petty theological dispute between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. After all, doctrine doesn't really matter. The only thing that matters is how you live. He does not say that. Rather, he says, your problem is you don't know your Bible. If you understood the Bible... You wouldn't be asking a stupid question like that because your question is ignorant. The very question itself demonstrates that you don't understand your Bible. And then he goes on to give an example and he takes you right to the book of Exodus to where God announces his name to Moses. Verse 37, you see this. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush. God announces his name to Moses and he says, Moses, I am who I am. And just to be clear, so you understand what that means, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And what's his point? His point in saying that was to declare that he was the God of the patriarchs, even though the patriarchs were long dead. Not only long dead at the time Jesus is encountering the Sadducees, long dead when Moses stood in front of the burning bush. Dead for centuries. And and God does not say, I was their God. He says, I am their God. This is the point Jesus is making. 
God's not saying to Moses, you know, a long time ago when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were alive, I was their God, even though they're not around anymore. He announced himself to Moses as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the present, I am their God. And Jesus simply says, look, you can see from that that there is life after this life. That there is resurrection, because God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, there are those who would deny that one can find a doctrine of resurrection in the Old Testament. To deny that is to deny what ought to be obvious. Had Jesus wished, he could have gone to the book of Job, for instance, in which in chapter 19, verses 25 to 27, Job proclaims, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I will see God whom I on my part shall behold for myself and whom my eyes will see and not another. How is he going to see God from his flesh when his flesh has been destroyed? Resurrection. That's the answer. Or Jesus could have gone to Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2, which says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. That sounds like something you would find in the New Testament. But it's Daniel. Or Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead will live. Their Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Jesus could have taken the Sadducees to so many passages that that very clearly speak of the resurrection. Instead, he said, let me go right back to the Pentateuch, right back to the Torah, right back to the five books of the law, back to the books of Moses. Let me go right back to those books which these Sadducees recognize as authoritative. And I will prove the resurrection from those books which every Jew recognizes as divinely inspired. It's absurd, isn't it? To hear some people say, as some do, oh, you know what, I have a a great admiration for the Christian tradition, but I'm just not sure whether the Bible teaches that the resurrection is necessary. I'm not sure whether resurrection is a necessary part of Christianity. I admire the teachings of Christianity and the ethical teachings of Christ, but I I just can't accept the claim of miraculous events like resurrection. And that is absurd. 
It's absurd because the same Jesus who sets forth his profound moral teaching also sets forth the teaching of resurrection. And you cannot consistently draw a line between them. J. Gresham Machen was a professor at Princeton Seminary from 1906 to 1929. When due to Princeton's drift into liberalism, he left Princeton to establish Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. In 1923, Machen published a book entitled Christianity and Liberalism, in which he made the point that the controversy then raging in the church was not between two different forms of Christianity, but rather between two entirely different and distinct religions. There was biblical Christianity, and then there was liberalism, which is not Christianity at all. And that distinction remains. When one claims some allegiance to Christianity, but denies the resurrection, it is not Christianity to which they have allied themselves. It's something else entirely. It's a different religion altogether. One cannot claim to be a follower of Christ while denying the very doctrines that Jesus himself taught. And Jesus teaches that the Bible teaches resurrection. But Jesus not only affirms the doctrine of resurrection, he also affirms the importance of the doctrine of resurrection. We need to understand that Jesus is so emphatic about this because Jesus believes doctrine matters. Whether or not you believe resurrection matters. It matters eternally. Jesus defends resurrection from the scriptures. He teaches that the Old Testament speaks of resurrection, and he makes it clear to us that resurrection matters for the way that you live this life. And what you believe about resurrection also makes clear something very important about the gospel. So when we talk about the importance of doctrine, we're not just, we're we're, we're not going to the other extreme. So that on one extreme, you have those who say doctrine doesn't matter. It's just a matter of how you live. And on the other extreme, you would have those, if any existed, I don't know of anybody who would say this, but on the other extreme, you would have people who say, well, doctrine's all that matters. And and how you live isn't important. Jesus doesn't say either of those things. What Jesus says is that doctrine impacts life. How does he do this? Look with me at the passage again, if you would, picking up at verse 34. As Jesus responds to them, he says, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. 
for they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now let me just point out as an aside here for us this morning, you have here Jesus giving us an understanding of what we refer to as eschatology. How do we understand where we are now and where everything is going in the future? Jesus says it's very simple. All of time and eternity is divided up into this age and the age to come. This age and the age to come. And they have different characteristics, this age and the age to come. Understand how Jesus is responding to this skeptical, mocking question. He's saying, don't you people understand that the age to come is going to be fundamentally different from this age? Now, we've gone through this quite a bit, haven't we? There's this age and there's the age to come. And what is the dividing point? The dividing point is the return of Jesus Christ. And everything that happens when Jesus returns. Which includes resurrection. And Jesus is saying that 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 point at which all history hinges. Tells us things are going to be very, very different Their question assumed that the age to come is going to be like this age. And Jesus says, you guys just don't know what you're talking about. You're simply demonstrating your ignorance and making such an assumption. The reality is that the age to come is going to be fundamentally different from this age, and it will be fundamentally different in ways that you can't even comprehend. Now, don't miss this. He's not talking only about the general resurrection. He's talking about the resurrection of believers. At the general resurrection, both believers and unbelievers will be raised. Unbelievers to judgment, believers to glory. And he says, those who are accounted worthy considered worthy to attain that age, are going to experience a particular kind of age. They're going to experience a particular kind of existence. And this is how he describes them, verse 35, those who are considered considered worthy to attain that age. How do you get considered worthy? Accounted worthy to attain to the age to come and to the resurrection of the righteous if you're not righteous? This is an important question because I'm not righteous and neither are you. And so we need to know how are we considered worthy? Only by grace. Only through the gospel. Only by faith alone in Christ alone. Only by receiving the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Since we have no righteousness of our own. 
It is through Christ and the imputation of his righteousness to us by faith that we can be counted worthy of eternal life and the age to come and the resurrection of the righteous. Scripture says, Old Testament and New, there is none righteous. There is none who are good. And so we need a righteousness that we don't possess within ourselves. We need an alien righteousness. A righteousness that belongs to someone else, but that can be given to us. And that is the righteousness of Jesus. Who was born into this world, lived a perfect life, in perfect obedience to the law, in perfect obedience to his Father, and went to the cross and was raised again as evidence that he did indeed live that life. And when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, not only are our sins forgiven, that's only the negative part of it, but his righteousness is imputed to us. That's the positive. And so we can, as we prayed earlier, we can come before the throne of God boldly, not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is. So even in this answer, Jesus relates the resurrection to the gospel. And he says, if you're going to enjoy this resurrection, you've got to be counted righteous. Since you're not righteous yourself, you'll need another righteousness in order to be counted righteous. And even in this passage, he's pointing to that imputed righteousness, which is ours only in him. But in saying this, Jesus is affirming the importance of the doctrine of resurrection for his people, for his disciples. He does that repeatedly in the Gospels. And of course, we see it, as we've mentioned before, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul tells us that if there is no resurrection, we are of all men most to be pitied. We are miserable creatures. Paul's attitude is not, Christianity is a great thing, whether there is an afterlife or not really doesn't matter. It's just good to live for other people. It's good to live like Christians, even if Christianity isn't true. That's not Paul's attitude. I read this week of an interview conducted many years ago between a priest and a religiously skeptical reporter. And the reporter said to the priest, look, if you turn out to be wrong, and there is no God, and there is no afterlife, won't you be kind of disappointed that you've lived your life the way you have? And the priest responded to him and said this, no, 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 no. Even if there were no God and there were no afterlife, this is the most blessed way that a human being could live. What would Paul have said about that statement? We know because he's already said it. All one needs to need do is discover how Paul would respond is to read 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's response would be to say, that's nonsense. 
If there is no God, if there is no resurrection, if there is no age to come, if there is no resurrection of the righteous, then we who believe this are the most miserable human beings that ever ever crawled on this planet. If none of that is true, eat, drink, and be merry. We've seen over the last decade the continual redefinition of marriage along with the legalization and normalization of that redefinition, which is a definition which has never before existed in the history of the world. One of the arguments that was put forth by a defender of this redefinition went this way. He said, we live on a rock that orbits a third-class star in a universe where there is no ultimate truth. Morality is entirely socially contrived. Why can't you people just let us choose who we want to spend our lives being a partner with? Now understand that if that person's premise is true, his argument is irrefutable. If his premises are right, if there is no God, if there is no judgment, if there is no afterlife, then why can't we just make this up as we go along? Just let people do whatever they want to do. If you grant his premises, then the outworking of his argument is true. It's sound. It's irrefutable. Jesus' response Paul's response would be, your premises are wrong. You see, the resurrection matters. The resurrection matters in regard to our definition of marriage. The resurrection matters in regard to sexuality. The resurrection matters in regard to issues of justice. The resurrection matters for how we live our lives now. The resurrection matters because at least one thing that Nietzsche said was true. If there is no God, everything is permitted. Jesus wants us to understand that doctrine is not just something that theologians sit around talking about while they're smoking their pipes and drinking their scotch. It impacts the way that we live day by day by day. Now, after completely closing the mouths of his questioners, look at what's said in verse 40. They did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. They weren't going to dare ask him any more questions. So... What happens? Jesus asks one of his own. And so Jesus then says to them, how is it that they say Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, David calls him Lord. And how is he his son? 
The Jews of David, uh, of the Jews of Jesus' day, thought of ancestors as greater than their descendants. So if David is speaking about his son, how does David speak of his son as being greater than he? How could David's descendant, his son, the Messiah, be greater than David? How could it be that he, David the greater, would call his son, who is the lesser, Lord? Now Jesus asks this question for a reason. He's going to raise it again later in the same gospel. And Luke is going to raise it again in the book of Acts as well, in Acts chapter 3. Jesus quotes from the psalm, which the New Testament quotes more often than any other Old Testament passage. And he does so because he wants them to understand something about his lordship. He's not simply coming as a political liberator. He is lord in its most comprehensive and exhaustive sense. He is not just master, he is God in the flesh. And you see how Jesus, in this interaction, is pressing them to ultimate things. He's pressing them to answer other questions. Questions like, who am I? And who do you believe that I am? And what is the resurrection? And what is the gospel? And he does so because what you believe about those things matters. Just as much to us as it did to them. David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said to David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. How does David call his son Lord? Because his son is God. His son is the God-man, Jesus Christ. Deity who takes on humanity. And the only way we can rightly understand resurrection is to understand that it is based on the incarnate deity of Jesus Christ. If Jesus was raised, we will be raised. And Jesus was raised. And there is the promise of resurrection. And that is where our confidence lies. That is where our joy is. There is an old and terrible joke dealing with the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. That is why they were sad, you see. I'm sorry. 
for the one who does believe in the resurrection. There is joy. Because resurrection is our entrance into eternity, dwelling with the Savior. Why is heaven heaven? Because Jesus is there. And resurrection, following upon Christ's resurrection, is that which ushers us into the presence of our Lord, which is a place and a condition which will never end. That is the promise of resurrection, and that is the source of our joy. I trust that you will go today in that joy and looking forward to the fulfillment of these promises. Father, thank you. We are so grateful for your word and the truth, Father, which comes to us in it. We thank you, Father, for the teaching of Jesus, which we have seen today. Father, may we be full of joy as we contemplate what awaits us in the future and as we remember always that because Jesus was raised from the dead, so too will we be. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.